All right, well, I'm under a lot of pressure. Nancy said this has to be good. So, I, I, I think... I think if we rightly understand judgment, it has the potential to be good. <laughs> and uh, Nancy mentioned that uh, Benji Alexander was out here and he shared something with her about wrath. And I remember when we first, the Lord walked us through the understanding of wrath, that it was the very passion of God, the ecstatic passion of God that guaranteed us getting to our destiny. And... Uh, so the big lesson I learned out of that is listen to the Lord and don't be afraid of anything in the Scripture. And judgment is definitely one of those things. So last week, remember we looked through it. I'm going to review just a tiny bit. Uh, or actually, I'm going to review a little bit. But this is called judgment is light, bringing on a crisis. And if you remember, one of the Greek words that we looked at is krisis, which is where we get the English word crisis. It's one of those words for, for judgment. But Jesus says that judgment is like coming to challenge us who love darkness rather than the exposure that light brings to our deeds. And if you could think just for a second, it makes perfect sense to me, the insanity of keeping the very things that destroy you, hidden. But it goes on all the time. We're cursed that way somehow. We, we, we play into that. And then, of course, keep in mind that one of the things that the, the devil himself is, is judged for is being the accuser of the brethren and a deceiver. And so he keeps those things in front of us all the time those kind of accusations. So judgment is actually light coming to challenge us, our shame, our fear, staying in the dark. And then Jesus also says this, and this is where I think the happy dance should start. If judgment is light, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world, then our encounter with judgment and you guys know that you've got those little icons coming up shortly, right, from our, our previous messages. Our encounter is is our encounter with judgment is an encounter with God Himself. Now, to say that, a lot of people would be scared, but this is judgment. Light has come. So these are the icons you guys know well. I uh, represent when we were talking about the Father and creation, God and creation. Uh, Jesus coming down here, the Holy Spirit, and now there's this amazing little symbol of Him ruling and reigning right now, currently, and that we're seated with him, we're here. And this is judgment. This is judgment, not some abstract judicial act, not something at a distance from us, but the God who is love, the God who is spirit, fire, and light, and love again, is the source of this judgment. Now, I'm going to bring, uh, I want to remind you guys of a scripture that I got all happy about when we were looking at the whole Gehenna thing. And this is Jeremiah. It's in the middle of Jeremiah's prophecy. And these passages, oh, there we go. Thanks, bud. These passages are, are so centrally located in Jeremiah's prophecies. If you remember, the prophecy that foretold the new covenant is in Jeremiah 31. This is in Jeremiah 32. But if we back up a little bit, a few, just a few chapters, we see the, the severity of the judgment that was put on Israel because of all that went on with the worship of Molech, the burning of the children, all the stuff in the Valley of Hinnom. And even to the extent, if you remember, when Josiah came as that young king and began doing these reforms, and he won the heart for sure of the father, because he said, I, I, you know, because he has done what I delight, because he has done what I've called, I won't let this thing, this judgment, which was the exile to Babylon, happen during his lifetime. So he ruled for 30-something years successfully. But this judgment was so serious that even with the reforms that Josiah brought on, God says, it's still going to happen. The people, it's necessary, all right? So 31 and the first part of 32 is Jeremiah is prophesying the word of the Lord about this uh, Babylonian exile. 
And then the Lord speaks back to and through Jeremiah and says this. And I think this is just super amazing. 32, 36 to 42. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city, he's talking about Jerusalem, this city of which you say it is given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Now, what an odd thing for God to say, because he had just been prophesying that very thing. But he talks to him, and he says, So this city, behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. Now, this judgment that is the fruit of my wrath, my anger, my indignation is so sure that even with the reforms of Josiah, it couldn't be reversed. So we're talking serious, and it is a judgment. But I will bring them back and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good. Wow! So why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of understanding or wisdom? It's for our good. Let me read that last line again. I think it's just amazing. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. You remember sort of the preamble to the new covenant, the preamble to the that prophecy is I'm going to make a, a new covenant, not like the covenant I made when I took you by the hand out of Egypt, but you divorced me even though I was acting as your spouse. He says, I'm going to put... And I'm going to make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. And I got to confess, I have no idea what that means. I was thinking about spiritualizing it and going the Holy Spirit and and Jesus is the heart. And you, I, I could actually pull some scriptures together that would link that stuff. But I don't think that's it. I think it's just a, a, a raw expression of the heart and the passion of God in the midst of judgment. And then he goes on and he says, For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all these great disasters on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. So, one thing, whoops. So one thing that I want to get out of this, I want you to think about this. Remember I said last week when we were first introducing the judgment concept, as I did when we talked about hell, to think about judgment as if it were something that could exist independent of God is to set yourself up to be deceived about it. Because it cannot. There is no one else that is the author of judgment. No one has that authority. Doesn't mean God doesn't grant authority to do such like that. But so whatever this is, it is coming from him who is love, spirit, fire, light, and love. And so no matter what, and was it a hard time in Jerusalem? Was it a hard time in Babylon? I think so. You can read that in Daniel. You can see the, the what's, what happened, what was left. But even in the midst of what we recognize as a judgment, even as severe as the exile, God never, ever deviated from his passion to be all in all for his people. Do we think that God is is somehow more indifferent to us if we incur a judgment of some sort? Do any of those judgments come from anything other than the heart and soul of the Father? Can they? Can he act that way to us? The idea that judgments result in 
some sort of indifference from the Father is just got to be changed. We have got to change the way we think about that. We cannot keep talking about it and thinking about it as if it's okay to bring that sort of accusation against the heart of God. And I think this is just a fantastic example to me of it. Now, how does that play out in the moment when you're disappointed about not getting the new truck or when my septic tank burps and belches back into us, you know? How do you deal with that? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is you don't, you don't turn first to that sort of selfish, isolated pity. Oh God, why? How? How come you could do this? You know? And I love what your sister reminded you of. The very fact, I mean, Israel, we have to understand, Israel was better off for this exile. Now, we don't know how to measure that, but the momentum that they had created, worshiping Baal and Moloch, tore their hearts away from Yahweh. And therefore, the judgment of that exile drew them back. I don't fully understand it because, and I think the reason I don't is I underestimate how God sees us. I under, I think I underestimate what our value is to Him. Because if, if we, if we mean more to Him and to the cosmos than we think, then it's worth more to get us where we're going. And I think that's what we're missing when we talk about judgment. Okay. So these are the three Hebrew words. Uh, primary ones. There's a couple others that uh, speak to other stuff, but uh, the sort of the first one, the one on the right, is is sort of the root of the judgment word shapat, and then mishpat follows on that. Uh, actually, no, it's the other way around, and then uh, but it comes from that. And so I was somebody. They're gone this week, but they were asking me about sometimes the difference in the words that are used for similar concepts are that one is a verb and one is a noun. And that makes a bit of a difference how they get figured into scriptures. It's not like we turn everything into one way or another. Uh, but those are the, the three Hebrew words. I don't need to cover that too much again. But look, it's a verdict. It's to rule or to judge. And it's to judge or pronounce a sentence. So there's a thing going on. But keep in mind that there's not an implied outcome in the word. The context has to come. Um, interestingly, and this is a curiosity to me, in searching out other words, the King James, even as notorious as, and I think it's notorious, for being hard on judgment words, you, you don't get anything in the Old Testament speaking of damn or damnation. So, cool. The Greek ones, uh, these three primary so krima is a neuter noun, and it means a decision fundamentally. Krino is the verb to decide or to distinguish. So that's the difference between those. And krisis is a feminine noun, and it speaks of a decision. And quite honestly, I don't know the difference why one of them is feminine, one of them is masculine, and how that applies. But uh, I know the base noun that it, that it comes from primarily is uh, is the Crino one. All right. There's 188 uses of this in the uh, in the King James and in a lot of modern translations. Only 25 of those 188 are condemn or damn. And the reason, if you remember, we looked at last week, is because there really are words that mean condemn in the language and in the culture. So, kata, dikadzo. Catacrino, catacrima, catacrisios, and cataginosco. Cata means down. And so each of the inferences of those words of the decision, it's a, it's a decision down, a, a decision not in favor. So the, my point is, be careful when you're reading a translation and it jumps from judgment to, ju- to condemnation to damnation 
because it may not actually be linguistically legitimate. It's probably theologically motivated. Now, there are some places. So, for instance, when it talks about the Jews turning Jesus over to the Romans to be condemned, that's kata, one of these words. I think it's katakrima. But, uh, but that is the purpose. In other words, the, the goal was condemnation. It wasn't judgment. They didn't turn him over to the Romans to have a fair trial. So the intent there is expressed by this word. And I was thinking, uh, we, we used a little bit as an example last week that, uh, Paul talked about not putting young widows on the widows list because if they, uh, decide that they want to establish a new relationship, they will incur condemnation is the way a lot of Bibles translate it. No, they will incur judgment for the vow that they made. But I, I cannot believe that the polity in the early church was condemnation for that. And so I just think you've got to be careful about those words. Uh, but these words, katakrima, they're used uh, the number of times it shows up there about, whatever is that, 18, 5, 10, 28, 31. They're used like 30. Oh, yeah, I think it's right here. They're used 31 times, and except for where Peter's behavior backing away from the Gentiles was described as he was blameworthy. That's the word condemnation. Okay? So in its simple form, judgment in both the Old and the New Testament is about a verdict. It's about a decision. It's about an analysis. It uh, And it's about the one who applies or makes those. That, that's really all it is. Now, I'm not saying it's not a serious issue. But what I'm saying is it's not a damning issue. It's not a damning word. It's not a fretful word. It's a word that talks about something specific. And that is going to be discovered when Jesus, if we'll listen to him. Okay? So judgments can be and often are recorded as either positive or negative or as final or temporary, right? So, I mean, even as big as the judgment on Israel was for the idolatry with Baal and Molech, was it final or was it temporary? God just said it was temporary, right? Uh, Even though this horrible thing is coming on you, I'm going to get you back. So don't we just don't want to assume otherwise. All right, because of this reality we got to not let ourselves run interpretively into a final negative conclusion from judgment. And the reasons to not do that are because, A, it, it, it isn't justified in the language, but B, what it does to us when we think about scenes of judgment in the book of Revelation. or And, you know, there's stuff Paul says, and uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with this phrase here in Corinthians. I don't remember exactly where it is right yet, but uh, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Do you think that means condemn? I mean, do you envision yourself standing in line to be like that, that uh, little angel that takes the devil and throws him in the abyss and locks him in? It means judge. It means judge. Do you know that just about 20 words or 10 words before that, Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? How come nobody ever preaches that one? That seems like, I think it's because it's intimidating because we think that judgment is negative. Judgment is putting down, going down. So we just got to not think that way because it'll deceive us about us first, but also we got to not think that way because it sows in a distortion in our lens of God. And we don't think of him as the one who is love and spirit and fire, light, life, and all that stuff. The one or the ones doing the judging. Now, you guys, I would be open to a disagreement on this, but I think this is true. The one or the ones doing the judging supply greater clues to the nature, the purpose, and the duration of the judgment than do even the circumstances leading up to a given judgment. In other words, God was the one that judged Israel for the Baal worship. 
But you could tell it was going to be temporary. You could tell it was not unto destruction, unto condemnation, unto damnation, right? Because it was God doing it. And of course, he revealed that. Not all judgments have a whole storyline associated with them like the judgment the exile does. And so when we see scenes of judgment, when we see uh, cast him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, or we see uh, that great um, Babylon, you know, uh, judgment. I don't fully understand all those things, but I know that God gives us more context than the event. You understand what I'm saying? So we have to let that define our expectations, keep our hope open, keep our minds open. Not to minimize the severity of judgment or the necessity of judgment, but let who's doing it. The judgment seat of Christ. Honestly, where in Jesus' example do you pull a condemnation kind of context out of a phrase like that? And you know, I mean, even turning over the the tables in the temple and all this kind of stuff. Um, anyway, we'll get to that a little bit more. So, Jeremiah 32 is one. Do you remember Judges? We looked at Judges. Those two verses say this. And after Joshua died, and the elders of Israel died that were with him, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped Baal. That's verse 11. Pretty close. That's not 13. It's supposed to be 16. I mistyped it. Verse 16 starts this way. And God appointed judges over the people to deliver them. His reaction. So this is what I'm saying, that the event leading up to the judgment gives you less of a clue about it than who did the judging. God's reaction to the children of Israel falling into Baal worship was to give them judges to protect them and deliver them. That was the judgment that the judges were judging. Okay? Make sense? So with this in mind, let's see what Jesus reveals about judgment. Tonight's focus is, what can we learn from Jesus? The first one is that judgment equals that light has come, and he, the light, has come for a reason. So here we are at John 3, 16-21. And now I've just got four scriptures that I'm going to walk you through. You can ask questions if you have any. Um, whatever. All right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, and just as a little Greek lesson, because this really stuck with me, and I'm working on being able to articulate this more definitively, but the word that is translated whoever, or in the King James, whosoever here, is not one Greek word, it's two Greek words. Those two Greek words are pas ho and reading them in the reverse order that it takes in that phrase, it means the all. Ho is the direct article. Pos is all. Now, what I can't tell you is where every other place of the like 16 or 18 places that whosoever is translated, for instance, the New American Standard, but it's not pos ho most of the time. It's either ho or it's ana, which means a set of the whole. But this says, if you were to translate this literally the way you read it, which written, it would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the all believing in him shall not perish. Now, I'm not saying that you can build a universalist doctrine from this one reading of these two Greek words. What I am saying is you can get an absolute, absolutely clear understanding of the motive of God. He sent Jesus so that the all could believe. The all. Anyway, I'm going to do a word study on that other and I'll bore you with it someday, but it's kind of fun. All right, so that the all believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. That's a pretty definitive statement. The goal of the Father in sending the Son was not to judge the world. I don't exactly know what to do with that. 
because there is the judgment seat of Christ referred to, because da-da-da-da-da. But my point is, are we going to learn, are we, are we going to back up in our thinking a little bit? And are we going to allow what Jesus says and does to teach us? Or are we going to be like Peter and go, no, Lord, <laughs> no, Lord, you are the judge. All right. So here, this is Jesus talking. For God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. Now, I am going to talk about that one thing that made me think of. I was watching, uh, this was a while ago, I was watching a graphical presentation of the gospel. And they had Jesus, uh, it was a doodle board, uh, whiteboard kind of illustration. And Jesus was this very congenial, very pleasant looking guy with long hair and a robe. And they get all the way through this, and then they start going into the second coming of Jesus. And he is this angry, fierce, lightning bolt throwing visage. And it was like, you know, he was a nice guy for a long time, but now he's coming back to kick butt and take names. <laughs> and and I'm going, okay, I understand, I understand the theology from which that comes, but I don't understand the scripture from which that comes. And I don't understand how you can take something that speaks so directly in so straight terms and just blow it off without at least thinking about it. And partly it's because we don't want to be confused. Don't don't confuse me with revelation. I I have beliefs. And Vicky and I were just talking. Uh, she stepped out for a second. She was just talking. Uh, she read something, a post. And probably, I would say in her life, the most common response when somebody challenges hell or challenges judgment, either one, is, well, then why did Jesus have to die? As if the only explanation for why the Father sent the Son was to overcome, to escape hell or overcome judgment. You know, and, and, and we gotta, I don't want you guys trapped into thinking that. I don't, you know, you can believe what you want, but I don't want it to be out of no choices. All right. So anyway, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So if I could borrow an example from you, Dave, you go through this thing, you get bent out of shape, then all of a sudden, Judgment sort of brings you back. Judgment, what, shame on you, Dave? No, light, light. Your sister goes, bong, you know, and she speaks the truth. You come back into this thing, and now you see that even going through this process is something in which you are being shaped, made, wrought, like wrought iron, wrought by God. One of the things that judgment is for is to prove to us that we are who God knows us to be. One of the things that the exile to Babylon was for was to prove to Israel they're worth something, that they're different than the people around them, that they have a different God. I don't know how to fully understand this, and I don't know how fully to apply it, but I know that when God shines light on something, and that's what Jesus said, and he's talking about himself here. This is amazing. He's, he's talking to Nicodemus, explaining the fundamentals of relationship with Yahweh through his son, the Messiah, to a teacher of Israel. And he gets exasperated a little bit, or I don't know if exasperation would be appropriate to call it, but he goes, if you're a teacher of Israel and you can't understand this, you know, when I'm teaching you, how, how are you going to understand this heavenly stuff? So, Look at this. This is the judgment 
that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. So now all I'm asking us to do, because I don't feel that I can exegete this and explain it and make it 100% clear and expose every single thing that's going on. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when Jesus himself in a serious narrative says, this is whatever he says, why, why don't we start there and say, okay, so when I start thinking about what judgment is, I'm going to start with what you said. Judgment is light coming into the world. And then we can get into the nuances about it. Okay, so men love darkness rather than light. Well, judgment will push against that, will illuminate that, will inflame that, will expose that. But judgment will also show you and me and others that the core of their works are wrought in God. They come from who he created them to be, who he called them to be. And I think that I I personally have never in my life heard a message preached that featured verse 21. I've never heard it. I'm not saying nobody ever did it, because I've been a billion messages preached that I haven't heard. But I have been in church for a long time, and I've never heard anybody say that the objective of God in this judgment was to prove that the works that you do are born of Him. But it should, because it's really central to the whole message of Jesus. All right, so here's John chapter 1. See how it connects to John chapter 3, aside from just being three chapters ahead. (laughs) It's okay. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do you see the connection? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Do you see the how this is playing out now with darkness? Right at the beginning of the Gospel of John. So when he's explaining to Nicodemus, this is judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. He's talking about the very issue that the Father sent the Son, the Logos, to become flesh, to fix. We're in darkness. Then all of a sudden, if your mind's like mine, it runs back to Isaiah, uh, you know, uh, deep darkness on the people, you know, rise and shine, your light has come, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So this is not some uh, one-off about judgment. This is the heart of God carrying Israel, the heart of God, reaching out to the new covenant, the heart of God, speaking to the people of this world, fulfilling the destiny that Israel was called to fulfill, the Messiah bringing light to the world. Okay, so here he was. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And I put some Greek notes in here just because I want to clarify something, and I think it's fun. Uh, He is in the nominative case, okay? What the what those cases do is they help identify pronouns in Greek. They help identify pronouns with the other word in association. So there's two sets of uh, references here. One of them are nominative, one of them are genitive. And the genitive one is because it's uh, uh, possessive, it's from or for. But it links which word to which person we're talking about. So... He, nominative, came as a witness, nominative. So who's the witness? John is the witness, right? Because the nominative word witness links it with the word he, which is John. All right. So he, nominative, came with uh, as a witness to testify about genitive, the light. That makes sense, right? So John was the witness, became a man named John. He was the witness. The light was set up as a genitive. And then it goes on, so that all might believe through him. Now, him could have been written as a nominative, and it would have referred to John, or it could have been written as a genitive, and it would have referred to the light. And it would have made a big difference as to what was being said. John bore witness of Jesus so that all might believe through the light. 
through Jesus. Again, right in the beginning of the Gospel of John, it reinforces that the heart of the Father in sending the Logos and in sending out of 400 years of prophetic, relative prophetic silence, sending John was so that all would believe through the light. Words make a difference. They do, really. I wish I knew more about them. All right. Uh, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. But he came unto his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so now you say, why are you using this verse to support what you're talking about on judgment? Because Jesus says, this is judgment. Light has come, and men love darkness rather than light. So judgment is the situation, it's the gift of the Logos of God from the heart of the Father to confront the issue of the light coming into the darkness and the darkness not laying hold of it. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Why? Because they were in darkness. But as many as do receive him, Right? Gave he the ability to become, or the, he made them the children of God. He activated the, the destiny of, of who we are and what we're doing. And then look what it says. Who were born, and then it lists all the things not of, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the whole born again experience is not a reaction to an invitation. It is the expression of the work of God's intention from the beginning. The Jews didn't earn their way back from Babylon. It was always the gift of his heart to bring them home. But something akin to judgment was necessary to get them out of the darkness that they had fallen into to such a depth that it led them to burn their children on an altar to Molech. Or to take the, the very sacraments, and I'm using that word in quotes, that they used to worship Baal and bring them into the temple. That had to go, because they were made for more than that. And they belonged to God. And that's what this is. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Make sense? This is the root of judgment right here. All right, how about John 12? Jesus gets a little more specific here. So, you know, there was a voice in heaven and a bunch of people there. that There were Gentiles and Jews there, and they were saying, oh, can we see Jesus and all this kind of stuff? And the Lord spoke, uh, says, I have glorified him and will glorify him, and will be glorified. And uh, they heard that voice, and some thought it was thunder, some thought it was lightning. But anyway, they they... Asking Jesus knew they were confused, so he said this. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Okay. Jesus is identifying the time and the place that judgment is. Now judgment is on the world. It's Jesus speaking. Okay. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So at least one of the fruits of judgment is that the ruler of this world is cast out. And if we were to jump off this verse and start going with all the stuff and scriptures that might be coming in fact to your mind already, is he has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Uh, that the devil has been, you know, he's uh, uh, on the cross. He overcame rulers and principalities and powers when we talked about image bearing and all that stuff. This is it. One of the huge manifestations of judgment is the, the, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, is cast down. Jesus backs this up in two more chapters, three, four more chapters, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin 
righteousness and judgment. You remember what he, how he defines the conviction of the world on judgment? Because the ruler of this world has been cast down. Then we jump up to Revelation. And everybody wants to read judgment into the appearance before the throne on like fire or this book. I'm not saying that's not judgment, but one of the primary manifestations of judgment is in Revelation chapter 12. And there was a war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought with the serpent. And he cast him down. And he was ticked off. And he went off to make war with us. Judgment is not just, and I'm going to make a statement later that it's not personal to God. It's not, that's what I mean by that. It's not just God keeping a record of your behavior and then finding you lacking. And that's the way we, I mean, squash you like a grape, right? I mean, that's the way we've thought for, and been taught for our whole life. All right. So now judgment has come upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw him into myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered and said, well, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain or the Messiah is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. So do you see how judgment is once again from the mouth of Jesus revealed to pit light and the deliverance that that brings, the sanity that that brings, the wholeness that that brings, and darkness. And darkness brings confusion. He who walks in there doesn't know where he's going. Make sense? Okay. Further on, and Jesus cried out and said, now, if you had just stopped reading about that uh, thing about judgment and darkness and light and so on, they were saying, who are, you know, who is this son of man? You can't get from that that Jesus was talking about himself. But just a few verses later, he gets very explicit, very explicit, just like he was explicit to Nicodemus. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So who didn't send his son to judge the world, but rather sent him to save? That would be God. Who said, okay, I'll go, not to judge the world, but to save the world? That would be the one that God sent. See, there's perfect agreement in what's being taught here. There's perfect agreement. Now, I don't know what to do with all the apparent judgment rendering things that go on to overthrow darkness and so on. But I'm just saying, let's start from giving Jesus' words the kind of credit that they probably deserve. And then we'll understand what's going on when we see those other parables or narratives or apocalyptic pictures in Revelation. Okay? So, if um, I have come as light to the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings, now listen to this. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I mentioned earlier that I had never heard that one verse 21 preached on. I absolutely guarantee you I have never heard that verse preached on with any kind of emphasis. Jason, if you don't obey Jesus, he's not going to judge you. (laughs) That's a terrifying thing to tell somebody, especially when you think the whole issue of judgment is to try to corral a bunch of recalcitrants who are hell-bent on disobeying God and living their own sinful, selfish life. But if judgment really is a light trying to reveal the falseness of your dark path and the things that are leading you here and there and everywhere else, it takes on a whole different meaning, a whole different meaning. 
If you hear my sayings and don't do what I say, I'm not going to judge you. Doesn't mean you're not going to get judged. He goes on. But the reason is because he is stating himself. He's not saying metaphorically. He's not saying in third party. He's saying I, I, I. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world. Now, that leaves us with a problem, which we'll have to get into later, because Jesus in another place says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment in the hands of the Son. So if the Father judges no one, and has given all judgment in the hands of the Son, but if the Son here self-declares that even if you don't do what I'm saying, I'm not going to judge you, then we have to find a better definition for judgment and a better purpose and a better way that it's going to shape people's lives and the kingdom. And that's what we're trying to do. But the first step is to throw away the sort of simplistic, dualistic, condemning form of judgment and put up with being confused for a few minutes. It's okay. He's not waiting to crush you like a grape, squash you like a grape. All right. Uh, he who rejects me does not receive my sin, uh, has one that judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Now, I'll be honest with you. I can sort of figure out what that might mean, but I don't have any idea. And I'm asking the Lord. I'm going, Lord, on it. Lord, what does that mean? What does that mean? How's that going to play into? How's that going to play into those final uh, apocalyptic pictures of judgment where if their name's not written in the Lamb Book of Life, they're thrown in the lake of fire? I don't know. I want to know. I want to know. But what I'm not going to do to fill the void of my knowledge is turn God into a monster, a father who is indifferent towards his children and is living with his emotions on his sleeve that aren't love and that aren't grace and that aren't mercy because he has never demonstrated himself to be that way even when he sent Israel to Babylon. So I'm not going to satisfy my confusion with an accusation against God. I just think, I just can't do it. Uh, for I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know what his command, I know that his commandments is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Let's just let that sit on us for a while. So what can we conclude? Every person's crisis of judgment, it's a little Greek word play there. Every person's crisis of judgment is simply being confronted with the light that is Jesus' life. When he came, now, and as he lives and reigns right now. We are all experiencing the the judgment that is the light of the life of Christ. And I can say we are all, because I know you guys have volunteered for it, but in the beginning of John, it says that his life enlightens the heart of every man. So that means the people out there that I think they are in total darkness. They have no light going on in their life. No. Light is manifesting in their lives, in their vision, in their hopes, in their, in their dark path as well. I have that promise. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying automatically it's all going to work out, uh, Rosie. But what I am saying is that this humbling ourselves before Jesus' declaration that this is judgment, that light has come into the world, keeps him at work, keeps his life at work in everybody's life that we see, whether it's personal or family members or on the news or whatever. Second, the power behind our love of darkness. Now, let me ask you this. Would any of you confess at any time to having any love of darkness in your life? I will. I don't like it, but it, it's been there. And there's some probably still there. And the reason I say that is because I don't know. I don't know what I still hold that is not of the light. All right? But the power behind our love of darkness, shame and the fear of exposure, that has already been defeated. And the ruling, accusing spirit that is behind that stuff is the first to feel 
the full impact of the judgment of Christ, the light of the world. And then there's some other things that are kind of cool. Jesus doesn't just say he's the light of the world. He says, you and I are the light of the world. Whoa. So now this starts to make sense when he says, so you're going to judge angels. Matter of fact, you're going to judge the cosmos. Well, somebody's got to do it because he said he's not going to, and he said the Father doesn't. So I don't know what that means, but I also know that the job of our judging of the cosmos is not to condemn it, right? Paul says that creation is waiting, groaning for the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. We're going to judge creation back into its original intent because we are going to carry the light that has been passed into us as Christ dwells in us. So let's welcome the light. Lastly, Jesus is single-minded about his purpose. If you don't take away any other thing I've said, at least carve out a season in your thinking about judgment to realize that the purpose of judgment is to show us who we are, and that our our passions, our activities, all this stuff, even if they get perverted, even if they get twisted, they are from being made in the image of God. They're wrought by His image. Doesn't mean there isn't repentance to do, but it sure does. Um, it sure does add weight to the idea that it's the kindness of God that does lead to repentance. It's not the threat of death or judgment. It's the kindness. And his light is kindness in our darkness. So he is saving the cosmos and us in it. His judgment is not reactive and not personal. And I I don't really like the way it sounds when I say it's not personal. What I mean by that is it's not him measuring his own offense against your behavior. He is, he came for the cosmos. He is trying to, so I, I remember asking the question one time, how you think about heaven depends a lot uh, on whether you think God is trying to keep all the bad people out or get as many people in as he can. <laughs> and I think that we would be closer to the truth if we came to realize that everything that God has done, and I say everything, I'm talking even the flood, even the exile, even, even, even Stephen, that would work. All of that is done with the motive and the heart to bring children home, to be known as Father, to be known as Yahweh, right? Okay? That's what I mean by it's not reactive. Does God react? Yes. But that's not the root of his judgment. And is it, is it between God and me? Yes. The light shines on me individually. But it was given to shine on us corporately, not as a personal vendetta. Okay? Light confronts darkness as it flows from his life, his words, and his victorious death. So, I think if this is true, and I think it is, I think it's evident in Scripture that it is, and if we give Jesus' explanation of things the proper place, we have to somehow change the way we react and the path we run down when we hear the word judgment. And that's all I'm asking of us for tonight and for this time. Suspend the negative presupposition. Suspend the condemning context, the condemning assumptions. Suspend it for a little while and let the Holy Spirit reveal Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Let him reveal the explanation of the voice coming out of heaven after Lazarus was raised. Let Jesus explain what it means. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of judgment. You mean the ruler of this world is cast down? Yeah. That's what I'm trying to convict you of. I mean, even conviction might need a little work in our vocabulary. (laughs) Okay. Um, 
Light confronts darkness as it flows from his life, his words, and his victorious design. So, what is judgment? And this is for those of you that have grown weary of these illustrations. Judgment is the light that God is coming against and destroying darkness. The devil doesn't have a kingdom of darkness, but the scripture said he has a domain of darkness, meaning it's, it's a place where darkness has influence. Light comes against that. Jesus came to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. That's very different than punish sin. And I'm not saying that there isn't some punishment in association with sin. But I'm saying that we have to change our thinking if we're going to be aligned with what God, in fact, is doing in the giving of his son and what Jesus is, in fact, doing in coming and giving his life and rising again and what the Holy Spirit is, in fact, convicting us of, which is sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin. Because I go to be with the Father. Her righteousness. Is that it? Was it? Sin. Of sin. Oh, because I won't be here. You'll see me. Gotta go be with the Father. Anyway, just read in John 16 and you'll understand that when we think about conviction and what we're going to be judged by, we don't think like that at all. And like I was talking about, about hell, if we allow ourselves to be entrenched in a belief that is not true, not only is the falseness of that a sore on our lives, but it keeps us from seeing what is true. And I have this sneaking suspicion, although I don't feel that I can articulate it yet. Judgment is something that is amazing and deserves a happy dance. It's not something to be afraid of in the traditional sense. It's certainly not something to try to avoid. God forbid that we should avoid the light exposing our darkness. Because if we do, then we're left to deal with our darkness by ourselves, by our own means. And I'm not good at that. Darkness begets darkness in that case. Okay? And we're especially not good at dealing with other people's darkness. So anyway, that's judgment. And then here uh, is, you can call me a heretic for this. This is judgment that my life, Jesus speaking, became the light of everyone and came into the world, cast down the ruler of this world and overcame your darkness and my darkness. You, my friend, are now free because of judgment to follow me. And if that doesn't sound familiar, it's because it's from the Larry McKnight personal <laughs> translation. <laughs> but it's pretty close to the truth. And I think if Jesus could, if we would listen and ask, he would say something to you like that about judgment. Okay? All right. I'm done. Any thoughts? Questions? Just give it a couple weeks is all I'm asking. Believe me, it's easy to revert back to something you've thought for the last 30 years or 20 years or however long you've thought it. But give yourself a couple weeks. Ask the Holy Spirit. Speak to me uh, about this. Is it true? Is it not? Is there something that I need to see differently about judgment? And I believe the Lord will do it. And then we'll share. Okay? All right. Well, Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, Jesus, thank you for dying. <laughs> for the multitude of reasons that you chose to say yes to that incredible, incredible challenge. Thank you for bringing us back into relationship, out of estrangement with our Father. Thank you for cleansing us of the death of sin. Thank you for reconstituting our inner union with our own destiny. 
Thank you for saving us and delivering us. Thank you for casting down the enemy and for breaking off the charges against us. Thank you for lifting us up and drawing us into yourself and carrying us into the Father. Thank you for being in us and with us. And thank you that we are in you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us rethink our reaction, our thoughts, our beliefs when we hear the word judgment. And I'm asking it in Jesus' name. Amen. 